to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Good morning. Uh, My name is Michael Ma. I'm the current congenital cardiac surgery fellow here at Lucille Packard at Stanford. Today we are joined by Dr. Frank Hanley, Chief of Pediatric Cardiac Surgery here and the Lawrence Crowley Endowed Professor in Children's Health, who has graciously offered to speak on the subject of Tetralogy of Fallot with pulmonary atresia, VSD, and MAPCAS, Major Aorta Pulmonary Collaterals. So, Dr. Hanley, I would like to begin by uh, thanking you for this and asking you to comment generally about the anatomy and embryology of this lesion. Um, with a focus on important concepts to think through in terms of the management and decision-making for this lesion. Thanks, Michael. Uh, So pulmonary atresia, VSD, and MAPCOS is in many ways a very unique congenital cardiac lesion because the anatomy is so variable and the management is so dependent on the individual anatomy, so it, it makes it a very complex defect. Tetralogy of Fallot is the larger sort of umbrella legion that this defect falls under, and it's probably the most severe form of tetralogy of Fallot. Uh, Most tetralogy of Fallot, as you know, has pulmonary stenosis, but a significant subset of patients with tetralogy of Fallot have pulmonary atresia. So if you have tetralogy with pulmonary atresia, there are then two subsets. There are those patients who have a ductus arteriosus, and there are those patients who do not have a ductus arteriosus. And for tetralogy pulmonary atresia patients, the incidence of a ductus is no different than in regular garden variety tetralogy of fallot with pulmonary stenosis, the common form of tetralogy. But the presence or an absence of a ductus in tetralogy with pulmonary atresia has critical importance at an embryologic level. And just like very similar to the regular tetralogy patient population where about a third of patients have no ductus, but about a third of tetralogy pulmonary atresia patients also have no ductus. For the one-third of patients with tetralogy who don't have a ductus, if you also happen to have pulmonary atresia, then that has very important embryologic implications because there's no central source of pulmonary blood flow. There's no forward flow because you've got an atretic pulmonary valve, and there's no ductus. When that happens, very early in embryologic life, the foregut original blood supply to the lung. Remember, the lung is a foregut organ. The very early embryologic blood supply to the lungs through the foregut vessels uh, does not involute. Once the arches form and the duct forms and the forward flow to the PAs happen, you get involution of the foregut blood supply and it goes away. And in a normally born infant with no heart disease, the remnants of that foregut blood supply are the bronchial arteries. If you happen to have no blood flow into your pulmonary artery system because you have pulmonary atresia and unfortunately no ductus, then you do not, um, there's no signaling for the involution of the foregut blood supply and the foregut blood supply remains the ultimate source of pulmonary blood flow as the embryo changes into a fetus and then changes into a newborn. And so those blood vessels that are coming off the systemic circulation, the aorta, which were the, have the same origin as the bronchial arteries in early embryo, embryologic life, 
become the aortic pulmonary collaterals. So roughly about 30% of TET pulmonary atresia patients have MAPCAs and two-thirds don't have MAPCAs because they have a ductus. Because of that embryologic foregut blood supply variation, what you see manifested at birth in a TET pulmonary atresia collateral patient is a wide variety of aortic pulmonary collaterals. The collaterals can arise from the head and neck vessels, the carotids, the subclavians. They can arise from the uh, distal arch, the entire length of the descending thoracic aorta, and occasionally even arise from vessels in the abdomen, either the aorta or some of the major uh, branch vessels in the, uh, in the abdomen, and come up through the diaphragm through the pulmonary, inferior pulmonary ligaments to supply blood supply into the lungs. The actual number of collaterals can vary greatly. Uh, there can be as few as one or two, and as many as eight, nine, or ten. The size can vary dramatically, and the course that the collateral takes from its systemic origin into the lung can also vary dramatically. So every single one of these cases is different, and it's very, very important before you develop a management plan for these patients that you understand the anatomy absolutely completely in great detail. So diagnostic evaluation is absolutely critical. The natural history of this disease is not good, it's bad. Since this is not a duct-dependent lesion, the very, very early mortality uh, is not as great. So the majority of these children will live uh, for the first few weeks and months of life. The mortality at a year is about 50% untreated. The mortality at 10 years is about 90%. So ultimately, the, the prognosis is poor, but it's not usually due to critical neonatal decompensation like a duct-dependent lesion would be. Probably 80% plus of patients will have enough pulmonary blood flow that they're not going to be critically cyanotic, but not so much torrential pulmonary blood flow that they are in high-output heart failure within 10 days of life like a truncus would be. So about 80% of patients who are born with this condition are going to be saturating between 70 and 90% and are going to be clinically stable. They don't need a neonatal operation because they're reasonably well balanced. They don't have a ductus, so they're not dependent on any medication. And most of these children then can be sent home uh, from a physiologic standpoint. There'll be the occasional patient who is profoundly cyanotic and needs something done at birth or it will be profoundly over-circulated and therefore will need something done, but the majority don't need anything done very early in life. The natural history of this disease is that over time, resistance or impedance through the collaterals increases as you get stenoses in the collaterals and you get more and more cyanotic and eventually uh, you know, that becomes a critical issue. There'll be the occasional patient where that doesn't happen, where they'll stay highly over-circulated, and that would be the mode of decompensation. But that's, again, a small percentage. The important thing to do is, at birth, do a complete evaluation of these patients. And that includes, first of all, an echocardiogram. And that's where you're really going to make the initial <coughs> diagnosis. You're going to see an absence of normally developed pulmonary arteries, and that's going to be the key, along with pulmonary atresia and the typical normal findings of intracardiac tetralogy pulmonary atresia. So it's a fairly easy diagnosis to make by echo, but the specifics of the collaterals in the pulmonary arteries cannot be made by echo in, in even the remotest sense. So some further sophisticated imaging needs to be done. 
what we recommend doing is after the echo makes the diagnosis, then we do a very, very detailed CT angiogram. The purpose of the CT angiogram is to look at the presence or absence of native pulmonary arteries, the size of those pulmonary arteries, uh, whether they're confluent or not, and whether they're existent or not. Again, getting back to the uh, original anatomy, about 23% of patients with tetralogy pulmonary treason collaterals have completely absent central pulmonary arteries, no native pulmonary arteries at all. The other 77% or so have central pulmonary arteries that are often very hypoplastic, but they're present along with the aortopulmonary collaterals. So the CT angiogram, first of all, looks at the native pulmonary arteries. Are they present? Yes or no. If they are present, how big are they in terms of diameter? And if they are present, how well do they arborize? So how do they branch? Do the native pulmonary arteries, regardless of their size, do they go to all 18 lung segments or not? And if they don't, how many do they actually go to? So that's one important thing that the CT angiogram is designed to look at. The second thing that the CT angiogram looks at is the collaterals themselves. How many are there? Where do they originate from? What is their detailed course from their aortic origin to their endpoint in the lungs? How much lung does each collateral supply? Are there any significant stenoses in the collateral or any of the branch points of the collateral as it enters into the lung? And then extremely importantly, does the collateral intercommunicate with the native pulmonary artery system if the native pulmonary artery system exists or not? And the terminology we use there uh, is, is each individual collateral an isolated supply collateral or a dual supply collateral? And by that, we mean does it interconnect with the native pulmonary artery system? So obviously, an isolated supply collateral would be a collateral that goes to a lung segment that the native pulmonary artery does not go to. There's no intercommunication. A dual supply collateral means that a collateral goes to a lung segment, but the native PA also goes to that lung segment, and there is connection between the collateral flow and the native pulmonary artery flow. The reason it's so important to define that anatomy in the newborn period is because there are several anatomic circumstances that will dictate that a neonatal operation is needed. If the CT angiogram does not give you all of the information, we would then go to cardiac catheterization to define the anatomy even further with isolated uh, contrast evaluation of each collateral independently, and that's how you really that's the, re that's the real gold standard way of determining isolated versus dual supply with an isolated injection. <clears throat> so why do we do the neonatal management when 80% of patients can be sent home and don't need an operation for several months or, or longer? The reason is because we don't want to overlook the patients with anatomy that require a neonatal operation. So overall, probably about 15% of patients with tetralogy pulmonary treasure MAPAs require a neonatal operation. And there are four different reasons why we do a neonatal operation. Two of them are anatomically based reasons, and two of them are physiologically based reasons. We already talked about the two physiologically based reasons, and that is someone is profoundly cyanotic and they're unstable due to cyanosis, and you have to do something. The other is 
the patient who presents like a truncus and they're profoundly over-circulated and by two weeks of life they're going to die from over-circulation and failure to thrive, so you have to do something. The two anatomic reasons that we want to operate on in, in the neonatal period uh, are why we do the diagnostic testing. So the two anatomic conditions that we want to address in the neonatal period are if you have one of those very unusual circumstances where you have collaterals to the right lung and an isolated true ductus arteriosus to the left lung. This is the only circumstance, as I said, where a ductus exists in a MAPCUS patient is when you have no central pulmonary arteries, no confluent central pulmonary arteries at all, and you have an isolated ductus to the left lung. That's the best vessel this child will ever have is that duct-dependent, essentially otherwise normal pulmonary artery going to the left lung. You then have any number of MAPCOs collaterals to the right lung, uh, and that patient needs a neonatal operation because if you don't do a neonatal procedure, that duct is going to close and you're going to lose the best vessel that kid has, uh, that very well-developed pulmonary artery to the left lung. You need to preserve the left pulmonary artery. That's the goal of the neonatal operation. That may be with a stent in the cath lab. Then you could send the patient home if you, if you stent open the ductus. It may be that you surgically ligate the ductus and put a shunt into that uh, pulmonary artery and preserve it that way. It may be that you do a neonatal full unifocalization repair. And that will depend on how favorable the collaterals are to the right lung. So there's a lot of decision that's made with those patients, but nevertheless they need a neonatal procedure. The other anatomic variant that we operate on in the neonatal period is that, again, fairly unique circumstance that comes up 5 or 10% of the time where all of the collaterals are dual supply. If all of the collaterals are dual supply, it means that you have native PAs. They may be very tiny, but they're going to be confluent, they're going to be present, and they're going to be confluent, and they're going to arborize normally by definition. If all the collaterals are dual supply, the native pulmonary arteries must arborize normally. So now what you have is a native little miniature pulmonary artery that goes to every single lung segment. You may never have to unifocalize any of those collaterals because it's all dual supply. There's no area of lung that the native PA does not get to. So the only reason, or a major reason, why the pulmonary arteries centrally have not developed is because the collaterals come in peripherally and all of the blood flow is in the lung parenchyma and there's very static or no blood flow centrally. So although you have a lumen, there's been no flow and pressure to make those arteries grow into a normal size. So they stay the same size they were at uh, eight or nine weeks of embryologic life when the whole system got set up. So that's the patient where you want to address those native central PAs as early in life as possible and stimulate them to grow. So that's the patient that we, with uh, all dual supply collaterals, centrally confluent native pulmonary arteries that arborize normally, that patient we bring to the operating room very early in life, neonatal period, and take the little main pulmonary artery off the infundibulum where the atretic valve is and turn the little tiny main PA into the side of the aorta and create an aorta surgical aorta pulmonary window. Right. So fully 80% of patients that we evaluate in the neonatal period, no ductus, no whole dual supply collaterals. There's some other combination where there's isolated supply collaterals. They're physiologically stable with a sap between 70 and 90%. That's 80% of all patients. There's no need to operate in the newborn period on any of those patients. 
and generally speaking, we don't. We send them home, and then we bring them back at about four months of life, and that's when we do the full one-stage unifocalization operation. Perhaps we can talk a little bit about the intraoperative decision-making and management for these patients as yes. well. So the general approach that we take to these patients is that we want to address every single collateral, unifocalize every single collateral that we can, because every collateral is going to add to the pulmonary vascular bed and is going to ultimately contribute to the lowest possible pulmonary vascular resistance we can. So the overarching philosophy here is to make the pulmonary vascular resistance as low as possible. So the best way to do that is a timely operation before vascular disease develops or before collaterals end up occluding and you lose that vascular bed completely. Either way, you've lost it. If you wait too long and a collateral stenosis and goes away, you've lost that distribution of lung, so you're going to have higher PVR. If you've got a high flow vessel and you wait too long, you're going to have obstructive disease in that vessel. Even if you do unifocalize it, you're still going to have high PVR in that lung segment. It's important, no matter where a collateral is, to attempt to unifocalize it. So our approach is to unifocalize every single collateral. If it's an isolated collateral, isolated supply collateral, it must be unifocalized, because that's the only source of blood flow to that lung. If it's a dual supply collateral, then a clinical judgment is involved. If the collateral vessel itself is larger than the native PA going to a certain load, then we will unifocalize that collateral even though it's dual supply because we want to take advantage of the raw material of the collateral tissue. We want to build up the PAs by unifocalizing using as much native raw material that's live and has the ability to grow rather than using artificial patch material. If there's a dual supply collateral and the collateral is one or two millimeters and the native PA branch is three or four millimeters, we may simply just ligate that collateral because we've got much more raw material from the native PA in that little addition and the time it takes to unifocalize that dual supply collateral is not worth it. The point is we want every single lung segment and subsegment to be perfused in the native system at the end of the operation. The purpose of the operation is the goal is always a complete unifocalization at that elective four-month operation. Median sternotomy, extensive surgical exposure of all collateral vessels. Once all of the collaterals have been unifocalized and the native PAs at present have been brought into the unifocalization process, now we have a single vascular, single compartment vascular bed just like a normal pulmonary artery. At that point in the operation, once the unifocalization is done, we need to figure out whether that vascular bed is adequate to be able to do a complete intracardiac septation and end up with an, with an acceptable pulmonary artery and right ventricular pressure. So again, we don't, it, these patients are very variable. There are some patients who have small native PAs and small collaterals, and even if you do the perfect surgical reconstruction, perfect surgical unifocalization, you still may have limited raw material, and the overall resistance in that vascular bed may still be relatively high. That's not a patient that we want to septate because you're going to come out of the operating room with pulmonary hypertension and you're going to be at risk of developing right ventricular failure. How do you then determine who to do the full 
septation in and who not to. What we've developed uh, based on some laboratory initial studies that we've then translated into the clinical realm is we introduced the intraoperative flow study. So this, in essence, to put it as simply as possible, is we simply do the unifocalization in the operating room. When the unifocalization is completed, we then do a diagnostic cath right there in the operating room on bypass, essentially. So once the unifocalized bed is completed, we actually cannulate it with from the cardiopulmonary bypass pump with a dedicated isolated pump where we can determine how much flow we're flowing into the PAs. We put a pressure catheter into the PAs and we incrementally flow into the pulmonary artery system uh, from you know, uh, 20%, 40%, 60%, 80%, up to 100% of a normal indexed cardiac output for a child of that size. If we can get all the way up with those incremental increases in flow to 100% of normal pulmonary blood flow for that patient, and we've got a mean pressure in the PA under those conditions of 25 or less, which is about four to five wood units of resistance, then that is highly predictive that if we do move forward with the full repair, we will have an RV pressure that is less than half systemic. So those are our criteria. Flow at an index, three liters per minute per meter squared. Uh, if we can get up that high with the flow and the mean pressure in the PA is under 25, we can be very confident that we can proceed at the same operation with an intracardiac repair, close the VSD and put a conduit from the right ventricle to the unifocalized pulmonary vascular bed and come out of the operating room with normal physiology. That is the goal. Uh, when we do this with the flow study, um, we find that about 65%, about two-thirds of patients pass the flow study, meaning their mean PA pressure is 25 or under. We go ahead and do the full repair. In the other third of patients, we may only get to 60% of flow with our incremental increases during the flow study. If we hit 25 mean pressure and we're only at 60% of flow, we don't continue because we've proven that that patient has resistance that's too high to come out of the operating room with an RV pressure less than half systemic and we don't do the full repair at that point. So we don't put a conduit on and leave the VSD open. That's not the way to go because you don't control pulmonary blood flow that way. You also do a ventriculotomy in a, pressure, in a patient who will have uh, systemic RV pressure, and that's not good for the RV. It's not good for the conduit. Pseudoaneurysms form. So that is not the way to go. If the patient fails the flow study, which they do in about a third of these cases, we will then do a central shunt from the aorta into the pulmonary artery system and we'll regulate that shunt to get a mean pressure in the PA of about 30 because that's the pressure that allows the healthiest microenvironment for the pulmonary vascular bed to grow over time. Those 33% of or so of the patients who fail the flow study and come out with a shunt, we then restudy in three months and see what their resistance is at that point. Our data shows uh, that of those patients who fail the flow study and are shunted, over the course of the next two years approximately, 90% of that subgroup, their PAs will continue to further develop, their resistance drops, and they then become candidates for a full repair at a second operation. So then they come back whenever it is. It may be at three months the resistance is already appropriate. 
to predict a pressure of less than half uh, if we were to septate. Once the full repair is done, then the follow-up is very, very important. So prior to discharge from the hospital, we do a baseline surveillance echocardiogram and lung perfusion scan, nuclear medicine lung perfusion scan. The purpose of the echo is all the usual reasons we do echo on any complex operation, but very specifically in this population, is to get a sense uh, by indirect measures of what their degree of pulmonary hypertension is. So we're looking at if there's a little bit of tricuspid regurgitation, you've got an excellent way of following the RV pressure from the TR jet. If there's no TR, then we're looking at right ventricular function, and we're looking at position of the interventricular septum to get a sense of where we are. So we get a baseline study echo at discharge that gives us a sense of what their pulmonary, um, what their right ventricular and pulmonary artery pressure is. We then do a lung perfusion scan to get a sense of what the distribution of flow is into the lungs. Now, and that's going to vary from patient to patient. You know, in terms of left-right distribution, it's not, it doesn't have to be 55-45 like in a normal person. It may be 40-60, it may be 60-40, it may be 70-30. That's just the nature of that patient's, you know, vascular bed. Right. The important thing is we get an early assessment of that at the time of discharge. Once the patient goes home, we then get follow-up echoes and lung perfusion scans at the three-month mark of their surgery, the six-month mark, the nine-month mark. And if those echoes and lung perfusion scans look similar to the baseline discharge one, then no further investigation is done during those first nine months. At the one-year anniversary of the septation, we generally recommend getting a catheterization on all patients. If the lung perfusion scan or echo at three months, six months, or nine months shows a change from the baseline, then that would trigger getting a cath even earlier. That's great. Thank you very much. Okay, great. Thanks.